listening to Best Served Cold, a Born Millennials podcast. The Australian true crime podcast where we drink wine and talk about crime. Formerly Egypt's 36th most popular true crime podcast, hosted by Tama J and Laura Lees. Sit down, relax, grab a drink and enjoy this week's episode. He's right. been around. That's it's, all. Those are the only words I know. Of it's song. Britney, bitch. It's Britney, bitch. Welcome back. Welcome. Oh my god, guys! It's been so long. I missed all your—not your faces, but your. We can't see you. I missed all your ears listening to our faces and make noises. What? That didn't make any sense. Mm, it did in my head. Okay. Well. Your head's a scary place to be. Welcome it to is. season two. 2021, Biarches. Best Served Cold, the podcast where we drink wine and talk about crime. Yes. I'm one of your amazing co-hosts, Laura Elise, but you can just call me Laura Elise. And I am Tama J. Alas, poor 2020, I knew him, Horatio. <laughs> the fuck? It's a Shakespeare reference. Um, so if you're new to the show, we're doing a new thing in 2021 where we just put a little, uh, precursor at the beginning of the show to just warn you that we do swear a lot on this show. Viewer discretion is advised. There is an explicit warning on both the show and every single episode, but we still get lots of one star reviews. So this is your warning. We swear a lot. You've been warned. I wouldn't even say a lot. I, th- I think we just swear, period, and it just kind of comes out. Yeah. And if you aren't a fan of that, that's cool. But um, pre-warning, we do that. We do exactly that. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, we weren't intending to take such a long break. We were planning on coming <sighs> back midway through January. And then, you know, just things things in life happen. Like 2021 has been a bit of a messy year. Yeah. Do you want to... Do we want to go into that? No. No. Okay, cool. Well, let's just, we'll just tell you that it's been a bit of a messy um, start of the year and our plans kind of got thrown out of the window a little bit. Hmm. And we're back now. um, Back, back, back again. You know, back to, back on schedule. uh, Starting today, uh, weekly episodes again. Yeah. And then I guess the Friday. Are we doing that again? Is that a thing? Yes. Doing that anymore? Yes, we're doing the Friday episodes Friday as well. Episodes. Yep. Cool. Bing, bang, bong. Bing, bang, bong. UK sing, hun. Sing. Oh my God. If anyone's listening to this episode and watches Drag Race UK, that I don't have any thoughts in my brain anymore. It's just, it's just that, that song. on loop. Yeah. I think that's my favorite song they've ever done on Drag Race. Yeah. I miss this. Oh, and um, a little uh, update. Well, not update, but uh, this is kind of like our special under the covers oh, episode. Oh, yeah. Um, so, you can't see us right now, but we're doing things a little different. We're currently in bed recording this, not like nude or anything, but well, um, I've like severely sure. injured my neck and trap region. So, being in bed and having my head propped up with pillows makes the pain a little bit more bearable. So, we're just trying new things. Uh, yeah. Yeah, until Laura's sort of gone through all her therapy, fingers crossed, everything's okay afterwards, we will, um, you know, be back in the studio, but right now we're just doing things in bed, taking it easy, Laura's trying not to strain herself too hard. 
I will say it's pretty classy. This is great. It's it's like I should we should be smoking I cigars. I think we should do this. I'm not. Gonna, I think we should just do this every week. <laughs> this is the most comfortable I've ever been. Yeah, I've got my bedside table right there with my glass of wine on it. I'm like literally almost horizontal. We should just with get a the microphones placed <laughs> so we can be lying down. And we doing should just this. get a studio with with a bed in it, and that's how we record our, our separate bed. For recording the podcast, it'll like it's more of an incentive to like actually do the episodes, or just do it in bed. No, there needs to be a separate bed for it. Why? A separate bed for sleeping and a separate bed for work. Okay, all right. That's how we do it at best. That's how we do it. That's anyway, we, we could have just not told them that, and no one would have ever known. But just no, so, just so you. But get I the full wanted them to know it. Picture. I want you to picture it. We're both currently in our pajamas. Yes. In bed, drinking wine. There's a laptop and a mixer at the end of the bed. It's great. It's very I professional. Stand, I think we should do this every week. I'm I, loving I stand it. it. I do stand it. Mm. Anyway, welcome back. Um, we have a six degrees of separation story that will be played in between uh, Laura and I's different stories. Yes. Uh, and let's just jump right into it. Phil DeFranco. Should I go first? Because mine's a yes, shorter one. You should go first. So. Coin flip. A coin flip. <laughs> um, I am hoping that we haven't. Like, like I'm not too rusty at this because it has been a good, like, nearly two months, basically. Yeah, I'm sure we'll be fine. But this is another one where I was kind of shocked that I had never heard of him because he's actually kind of similar in a lot of his personality characteristics to Ed Kemper. Right. And I was quite surprised, like, his crimes are pretty awful and I was very shocked that he only came up in, like, a couple of lists of, like, you know, 20 most fucked up serial killers, like that kind of BuzzFeed right. vibe. Okay. He doesn't really come up in a lot of things, and there's not a lot of information about him. And then the articles I did use as source all kind of said different things, so I couldn't really okay. find... Nothing like, reliable, obviously, of course. Obviously, there's like a, a key key points are similar, but like, mm. yeah. Anyway, I've noted it down when there's something where I'm a bit like. I will mm. say you get that a lot. A lot of cases, even like the high profile ones, there's a lot of articles that have mismatched information yeah. and they don't corroborate with each other. It's, yeah. So um, this week I'm covering Patrick Wayne Kearney, aka the Freeway Killer, which is a Nickname he shares with, I think, three other serial killers. Yeah, that's a familiar Or his name. Uh, unique moniker is the Trash Bag Murderer. Oh, that's a lovely name. So he has between 21 to 43 victims, Damn. depending on, again, which article you read. Some said like 21 to 25, some said 21 to 28, some said 21 to 38. And then I just went with the highest uh, bracket, which does actually make him, depending on... The correct figures, it does make him one of America's most prolific serial killers. Yeah, of course, depending on who you ask in those articles, I guess. So, um, his victims, I'm going to read the list of his victims and try my best not to mispronounce any of their names. Of course. So, his first victims were only ever known as John Doe 1 and 2, and then his following victims were only ever known as Mike and George and were never properly identified. Okay. Then there was John uh, Demischik, James Fletcher Barwick, Ronald Dean Smith Jr., Albert 
Rivera, Larry Jean Walters, Kenneth Eugene Buchanan, Oliver Peter Molitor, Larry Armanderes, Michael McGee, John Woods, Larry Espy, Wilfred Faraday, Randall Moore, Timothy Ingham, Robert Benefiel, David Allen, Mark Oreck, Nicholas Hernandez, Arturo Marquez, Hogan LeMay, and Merle Chance. So those were his victims, which were, as you may have noticed, all men. Yeah, uh, interesting. Yes. So I've started at the beginning. There's not a whole heap I could find on his early life, but I sort of waded through and found as much as I possibly could. So Kony was born 24th September in L.A. Again, that is a fact that is weirdly contested. Some articles say L.A., some articles say Texas, which are two very different Very different places. areas, of course, yeah. So I just put L.A. because that was kind of the one I found. It's that, the most cinematic. Uh, well, it was the one the most different sources could seem to agree on. There was okay. only like one or two I found that talked about him potentially being born in Texas. So he was born in L.A. in 1939. He had two younger brothers from his parents, George and Eunice. And from what I can see, he had a relatively normal, trauma-free life. Ironically, his father, George, was actually a police officer for the LAPD. One source, however, did say that when he was younger, around the age of 13, his father taught him how to slaughter pigs, specifically using guns by shooting them in the back of the head, which Mm, will be important later. Of course, yeah. So it was said that Kearney grew to like this so much that he would start just shooting pigs that weren't meant to be slaughtered just for the fun of it. Okay, right. Yeah. Yeah. And one point which is kind of... uh, I guess, folklore story to do with Kearney and is kind of debated as to how true this is. Some sources say that he loved to he loved the internal organs and when people went around, he'd pull them out of the slaughtered pigs and roll around in the offal. Okay, yeah, okay, so, this is bad. This is bad yeah. already. But I think this is something that's quite interesting about him. You know, you, you, you listen to stories of other serial killers and you hear that they have terribly not that it justifies or excuses anyone's actions but you hear that they have terrible abusive childhoods from a very young age and it kind of you can make sense of how they end up being the way that they do but he has a pretty normal childhood there's no mentions of you know Mm. sexual or physical abuse by any family members he was you know bullied in high school but like uh, he wasn't um, he was known to be a pretty thin child who was constantly battling some sort of ailment. And so being like the weird sick kid at school, he was often bullied. And it was said that in his teen years was when he started to become quite withdrawn and quiet. And so potentially when his sort of murderous fantasies began. Because okay. he does actually start killing quite young. Mm-hmm. He starts at the age of 20, which you sort of read about a lot of the other killers tend to start a bit later in their lives. Mm-hmm. So allegedly he would fantasize specifically about killing the bullies at his high school who had harassed him. And we'll sort of get to how he basically enacts that later in life. One thing, however, after he leaves school, guess what he did? What? What did he do? He joined the Air Force, serving time in the military. So he served his time in the military through a company called Hughes Aircraft, and it was here that he met David Hill and they began an affair. So Hill at the time of their meeting was married to a woman, 
and the relationship between them was fairly brief and volatile and it was said that the pair would argue a lot. However, after a short time, the relationship ends and it was then at around the age of 20 that it was said Kearney would begin cruising gay bars and looking you know, for something a little bit more sadistic than your simple one-night stand. Oh, interesting. So his first documented victim's name is unknown. However, Kearney did remember his victim was white and 19 at the time of the murder. Kearney confessed to his murder, stating that it occurred in spring of 1962 and it occurred after he picked up a young hitchhiker on his motorcycle, drove him to a secluded location where he then shot him behind the head. Okay. Do you you remember the pig thing? Of course. It's all piecing together. Yeah. So after the victim was deceased, Kearney then sexually assaulted the body and from what I could find, the body was never located. But Kearney sort of confessed with such detail that this victim is considered his first official one, despite never having been identified or or found. Now, I wanted to bring something up, which is that Kearney was only five foot five. So he's shorter than me and he's way shorter than you. And he would often purposely pick victims who are much larger than him. Potentially to try and, I guess, compensate and get revenge for the larger kids in school who bullied him. So he does this basically by crafting situations in which it's incredibly unlikely that he was going to be able to be overpowered. So, you know, he picked them up, gain their trust, and then drive them to secluded spots and then use sort of a far range weapon like a gun. So after this, Kearney murders another sadly anonymous young man in that same year, and then his former lover David Hill leaves his wife, and Kearney and Hill settle down in Culver City. After this, he remains quiet until 1967. However, after splitting with Hill again in 1971, his bloodlust rears its head again, and he begins killing in earnest, and by 1974, he'd escalated to killing almost on a monthly basis. Damn. So we would mainly target hitchhikers, prostitutes, and men from bars, but he would also sometimes target children, sometimes as young as eight, which is his youngest recorded victim. That's terrible. Yes. Okay. So body parts in trash bags soon begin showing up along freeways, which allows police to eventually identify the first victims. At this stage, Kearney is a seasoned killer and has his method down to a fine art. He'd lure victims into his car. Using his left hand, he would continue steering the vehicle, and then with his right, he would shoot his victim in the temple, either in the car or he would just sort of hold them at gunpoint until he got to the location. Shit. Then leaving their bodies seated in a semi-upright position in the passenger seat, uh, he would continue driving, being incredibly careful to stay within the speed limits, not disobey any road rules, so basically not draw attention to himself. He would drive the bodies to a secluded location uh, where he would begin to violate their bodies and then dismember them. So often he would begin to violently beat the victims post-mortem, which is interesting because he wasn't a sadist in the way that you know, here a lot of these serial killers would do these horrific things to their victims while they're still well, alive. alive. Yeah, Kearney would kill them quite quickly. In a, I guess, if you're going to put a word on it, I guess a sympathetic and quick way. And then he would do horrific things to their bodies post mortem. Right. Okay. So they wouldn't feel any pain. And yeah. Couldn't experience it. Or it could be to do with his size. 
Because there's only very little. So, yes, like, true. What are you going to be able to do to someone that big while they're still alive? Yes. So, but again, I think that goes back to his sort of childhood bullies, where this becomes sort of like a cathartic release for him to take out his rage on the bodies of these men that resemble these kids that would make fun of him in high school. So he'd dismember the bodies and then parts would be stored in trash bags and then he would dump them in canyons, valleys, and occasionally alongside freeways. Now, the thing about Kearney is he's known, like I said at the start, to be quite similar to Ed Kemper in that he has an incredibly high IQ, So, which means he wasn't stupid by any means. So sometimes in an attempt to cover his tracks, he would attempt to drain the bodies of blood to help keep the odour to a minimum, so thus reducing the chance of discovery. Mm -hmm. He would also wash any of the dismembered parts prior to disposal to ensure that any of his DNA wasn't left on the victim. However, it was hair follicles that ultimately led to his capture and arrest. So John Otis LeMay, LeMay? It's spelled L-A-Y-M-A-Y. LeMay. LeMay. Let's say LeMay. LeMay. Yeah, that sounds So he leaves his home the afternoon of Sunday, March 13th, 1977. He tells his neighbor he's heading to Redondo Beach to meet a man called Dave that he knew from his local gym. Turns out that this man was, in fact, David Hill, Kearney's former lover. Now, for reasons I couldn't quite make clear of, because like I said, the information on this dude is just so all over the place, I think potentially at this point in time Hill and Kearney are back together or they're still just friends. I couldn't really figure it out. I'm not a journalist. Don't come at me. Uh, so when LeMay says to his, you know, his friend from his mate from the gym, Dave, he's like, Dave, let's get a beer yeah. after the gym. Mate. Dave gives John the address, which is Kearney's house. So when LeMay arrives, uh, good old Dave isn't there yet, so he hasn't arrived home. So Kearney invites him inside to watch TV. Once inside his home, for reasons that no one can really figure out because it goes completely against his sort of previous MO, once Kearney, uh, sorry, once LeMay is inside his home, Kearney shoots him in the back of the head while he's watching TV, dismembers his body and dumps him in the desert. <clears throat> Once the discovery of LeMay's body is found, police are obviously able to draw links between him and the house that he'd gone to visit. Police visiting the home collect hair samples which are tested and a match for hair found in the trash bag LeMay's body has been dumped in match Patrick Kearney. So police put out a warrant for Kearney's arrest and he immediately goes on the run, however, probably sort of sensing his time is up and, you know, he's just... As I said before, he's a smart guy. He probably senses he can't run. Yeah, they forever. never last. Yeah. After a brief period on the run, he turns himself in. Very similar to Ed Kemper. Yeah. So upon his arrest, Kearney confesses to 35 or 28 or 32 murders, depending on which source you read from. He was tried, and on December 21st, 1977, he pleads guilty to three counts of first degree murder, which end up giving him a life sentence in prison and i believe he is still alive and in prison to this day interesting okay yes then um it'd be nice to have someone uh reach out to either like a lawyer or um a representative or even to him to confirm these numbers or to confirm 
any of these facts because it seems like it's a very um, un- untapped story or untapped part of the, mm. the true crime area. Like it's a case that's not very well known. Yeah, I always find I always find myself hesitating with these stories where it's kind of mismatched information because like obviously everyone knows Wikipedia for instance is not like the most accurate source yes. of information on the internet. Mm-hmm. So I always try and you know corroborate anything I read with like multiple sources if you know like six or seven articles are saying the one thing, you kind of assume that you can say it's fact. Yeah. But it always gets a little sketchy when you're like, oh, that said that, and that said that, and that said that. Yeah. None of them really match each other. And I don't know what is factually correct. I have kind of a theory on killers like himself and Mm -hmm. the killer that I'm covering where – there's a different sort of mental thing going on there. But I'll get into more of that when I get into my story. Mm-hmm. Um, but for now, thank you very much for that story, Laura. Anything you want to end end on that? or No, just that he he's so, like, kind of fucked up. Like, he'd kill people, have sex with their corpses, dismember them, yep. stuff them in trash bags and or drop their body post-mortem, which is interesting. To, like, multiple dump sites. And I'm so shocked that there's not heaps available on mm. him. It kind of makes you question what is it that captures the interest of people when it comes to, you know, like, the Ed Kemper and... Ed Gein and Richard Ramirez, yeah. like those killers who there's just a wealth of information available on. And then you hear about this guy and you're like, I mean, he killed a lot of people. It's very interesting because it's, it's, um, it, they seem like blitz killings almost like killings of opportunity. No, he didn't, mm. he didn't really like seem like he pick and chose his, his, his victims. And very similar to Ed Kemper, who was, a lot of the stuff he did was post-mortem and he would kill them mm. humanely if you can, if you want to put a word to it. That was the word I was looking yeah. for before. Um, not, not to make light of the whole situation or anything. No, but, but I mean, look, if someone to, came up to me and they were like, would you rather be stabbed multiple times or would you rather be shot in the temple? Yes. I know. what Which one? I would yeah. Be. Not that it makes it okay. No. It is it's very interesting that, that, that he would choose that moment to mm. do everything it, whether it was because of his size or because of his mentality wanted it to be post-mortem it's mm. um because yeah you kind of got thing. two sides of the coin like ed kemper would kill his victims and and do horrific things to them post-mortem but he was huge yes Kearney, very big guy like five five like that's shorter than i am yes of course so i can imagine that you know he's trying to you know, overpower these much larger guys that mm. he's picking up. Anyways, here is our this week's six degrees of separation. Thank you for having me on your show. Um, the assignment, as I was explained by my producer, was uh, to tell my tale as to what degree of separation I may have had or connection and encounter with the serial killer, hence the title. Uh, the six degrees of separation from a serial killer. So my tale takes place in Toronto, Canada, and Canadians are not very well known for 
uh, breeding serial killers, but this one was a doozy. His crimes took place basically over the course of the past decade, and I will say his name only once so that the audience has a reference point, but his name was Bruce MacArthur. The degrees of separation, as I understand it, would be zero being absolutely uh, complete, you're dead, and then seven being none at all, and then two would be a victim, or one would be a victim that got away, two would be um, someone's best friend was a victim of a serial killer, and various up until it's like a friend of a friend of a uh, knows a hairstylist who was a serial killer so that's kind of the scale that i was using for the assignment i don't know if it matches what you normally do but that's where i'm going to go on from there i don't like to draw attention to um the serial killer himself as i said but more towards the victims and the people who died because they're the ones who get forgotten but the name of this killer was Bruce MacArthur, and he would render his victims helpless. He used a pipe as his weapon of choice, using it as a, uh, either as a winch to, um, and a ligature to strangle, or um, in one case, I know he bashed uh, the person over the skull, and in another, uh, it looked like he was going to use his body weight in order to crush uh, the man's throat. Um now, after they were dead, he would pose their bodies in some sort of sexual ritual because he shaved their heads and their facial hair, which he did keep in Ziploc bags for uh, trophies, as well as one personal item from every uh, victim. Uh, this guy was uh, a piece of work, I'll say that for sure. Um, he would dress them up, take photos of everything along the way, the posing of the bodies, um, in in some sort of some sort of sexual event took place because there was his semen um, evident. But uh, well, uh, then he would roll them up in a carpet to transport them out of his apartment building because his apartment building was in a, a very busy part of town and so rolling it up in the carpet and taking it down on a dolly to his truck um, would be not odd but the amount of times that he did it might have called someone alerted someone to the situation because um, you don't exchange a carpet that many times being that there were eight victims um, where he was bringing them to was to his workshop because he was employed as a landscaper and uh, it was on the properties of one of his clients he had uh, all his tools there and he would then proceed to dismember the bodies and that's when he buried them into large flower planters and that's where they remained until they were found by the police during the investigation so this brings us to the part where, where do I fit in and what's my degree of se separation? Well, this shitbag had chatted with me on for th three years on three different dating apps over the years. But on May 7th, 2000, 2017, no, sorry, May 1st, um, 
I agreed to meet him at 3 p.m. He was going to pick me up and take me back to his place. Now, that day, I laid down for a nap about noon, and uh, I overslept, so I missed the hookup appointment. Um, It was a good thing that I missed the hookup appointment because I believe there was some evidence that he premeditated that he was planning to kill me that day. But it doesn't stop there. The next month, um, Andrew Kinsman went missing uh, during Pride Weekend. And he was one of the victims found in the flower pots. But that's not all. Because on July 27, 2017, I had agreed to meet Shitbag at 12 noon. But I was running late. But this time only 10 minutes late. And I was texting him and letting him know that I was running behind. So he waited. And I got in his truck. It was odd because the first thing I said to him that day when I got in his truck was, so yeah, there's a serial killer in the neighborhood. I wonder who it is. Why that came out of my mouth first, I'll never know. But um, in the five-mile drive back to his apartment, I learned that he was a mall Santa, which I didn't see as creepy. I saw it as, oh, he does community service and he's good with children. Uh, The three years of talking to me online, that was a way of grooming. So we got back to his place. Now, I did bring a drug called GHB. And because I was running late, I felt guilty. So I wanted to make up time. So I handed the drug to him. I handed him what to measure it with. I told him not to put double that amount or I would go to sleep. And then the last thing I said as I handed him the bottle was, if you were the serial killer, this is the drug you would want to use. I know, right? So off I went to the bathroom. I came back. He'd mixed it, as I said, with something strong to cover the taste because it tastes like shit. I drank it. And I don't remember much after that. I do remember... Eventually, hearing that his roommate was home. And it was on the rustling outside of the, in, in the apartment, we were in his bedroom, that I said, oh, your roommate's home. I should probably, uh, we should do this another day. Which he responded, not until you make me come. So I didn't even see the oddness of that kind of command. Um I just complied, and I left. And uh, when I got home, I, my partner and I are in an open relationship, and I usually tell him in, in advance where I'm going, but uh, he was at work, so I decided I would wait till I got home. I told him that I had a hookup with someone, and it was just a bad date, no chemistry. Seven months later, I got a call from the police, the day after they arrested Bruce MacArthur. And they told me that I had vital information for this case. And I I was like dumbfounded. I thought I have nothing to add to this. But apparently I did because he took photographs. He had knocked me unconscious that day. He posed my body. He handcuffed me to the bed after I was unconscious. He put a hood over my head after I was knocked out. He had put a blindfold over my eyes. 
And in one of the photographs, he had the pipe in his hand pushed firmly against my throat. He was starting to do his murder ritual with me. And I had no clue because it was his roommate coming home, which was a total fluke. He wasn't supposed to be home at all that day. He was going to spend the night at his boyfriend's, but he decided to stop by his apartment. And it was four hours earlier than he would on a normal work day. So MacArthur had to stop killing me. And then and I got free. So I think I fall in the category of one degree of separation. And I'm very thankful to his roommate. I feel very sorry for those eight men who died and uh, their families. So my name is Sean Cribben, and uh, I just finished making a documentary with a, a really great crew of people. Who, uh, it's called uh, Was I Next? The Sean Cribben Story. It's going to be uh, available soon. Uh, look out for it because it will tell you a lot more details. Not so much more on the crimes itself, a little bit, but more on the what happens to someone when they find out they were that close to death and the struggle they go through and how to work through that struggle and go from victim to survivor. So I'm a survivor. Again, Sean Kerbin here. Thanks for listening to my story. Wow. Yeah. That's um <sighs> amazing story. I I got like chills when when I was listening to Sean Sean's recording for the first time like the the thought of I can't imagine how it would feel to essentially witness photos of your own death without having actually died. Yeah, this like is that, probably the I first can't... time we've had a story like this from an a natural survivor. Survivor and a mm almost a victim of a serial killer. And I think it is a really important point that Sean meant that, you know, obviously we spend, you know, 40 minutes to an hour talking about yep. serial killers on this show because we find them fascinating. But I do think it's a very important point that Sean mentioned that so often the victims can get swept under the rug and just become you know, a, a number, yeah. a figure in this serial killer's, you know, crime spree. And I, so it's, you know, it's quite, it's very special that we get to share the story of someone who is a, who is, is, is a survivor. And I loved that point that Sean made about not being a victim, being a survivor. Yes. Um, I thought yeah. that was great. But yeah, I can't even imagine having, having the police show you images and, yeah, it's just that kind of um, what's the word like the how they were f supposed to meet up the first time, and you know Sean had a nap, and so he slept through the date, like that kind of just. And the second time, another f fluke. Another f fluke. Incident, that's yeah. the word. Another fluke incident where, <laughs> you know, this um. I also love the fact that Sean doesn't refer to his. him as by his name, he just calls him shitbag. Shitbag, yeah. I love that. All props to you. Um, you know, this guy's roommate just happened to come home and literally saved his life. But yeah, Sean, I think I think um, if you're ever in Australia, 
or of where ever over the pond. I mm-hmm. think um, I think we owe you a, a beer or a G&T or, or a whiskey a G&T, or whatever, whatever your, your poison, poison is. is. My friends, that story is nuts. And thank you so much for sharing it. And we're going to leave all the links to um, Sean's information in the show notes. So if you want to hear more about his story, mm-hmm. then you can do so by clicking on the links. But yep. thank you very much for sharing your story. Thank that, you, Sean. That was incredible. We love you and we're so thankful that you are here with us today in this world yeah. to be able to share your story. It's a, it's a really marvelous thing. It's very crazy. Yeah. Okay, well, continuing on with the show, uh, i got to say it's fantastic. It's kind of hard to go after that. I know, but it's you- it, it's hard to go after that, but I'm also very excited to be back and doing this because it's it, it's such a, a, a brain-jogging thing to to go through this and, yeah. um, you know, this story. And, w- I mean, this week, what a story to, to start this season off with as well. I, as you probably know from the show's title, we'll be talking about Ricardo Richard Munoz Ramirez, also known as the Night Stalker. It's a big one. A very big case. I believe uh, anywhere from 13 to 16 plus victims, depending on, again, um, sources and there's also been a few developments in recent cases where they've connected DNA to different cases, um, which I will get into all in this case. Uh, and just a quick little uh, fun tidbit. So when Richard was on death row uh, waiting his uh, execution, of course, he was in California at the time in San Quentin State Prison. Fun fact, when Metallica were filming their St. Anger music video, he was on death row in the same prison. Oh, I think I remember reading that somewhere. Yeah. So, he was somewhere there as they're filming the music video. Mm. Very eerie. Very. Very, very eerie. Um, so, let's get, get right into it. Richard Ramirez was born on February 29th, 1960 in El Paso, Texas. Born as Ricardo Leva Munoz Ramirez, he was the fifth child of a Mexican immigrant couple, Mercedes and Julian Ramirez. His mother worked at a boot factory where she was exposed to chemical fumes while she was pregnant with him. All oh, of his that's si- an interesting yes. tidbit I'd never heard before. And all of his siblings had birth defects, ranging from respiratory difficulty to bone deformities. At age two, a dresser also fell on Richard's head, causing a large forehead laceration. Mm, There's that head trauma. Yep. At age five, he was also knocked unconscious from a swing and started experiencing epileptic seizures. It's actually so wild. Like The amount of times you see that. We're getting into the number of episodes we've done, you know, pushing towards 40, and it's actually wild. Crazy. To go back and listen to the amount of like weird like the head trauma, military the military service, burning the arson. abusive childhoods. Like it's actually yep. crazy going through them and it's usually like I think it's the oddity if they don't have one of those three. It's it's very interesting. Yeah, the I think John Douglas said if if they have at least two out of three of them there's a good there's a good chance that like you can find a pattern Somewhere, and that are definitely a serial killer. Mm. So, long story short, if your child hits its head, 
Don't yeah. let it join the military. Uh, so, Ramirez also claims that his father was physically abusive to his entire family. At age 12, he was exposed to photos of raped and dismembered Vietnamese women by his older cousin, veteran, Miguel Ramirez, also known as Cousin Mike. He was a Special Forces Vietnam War veteran, boasted to, uh, often nicknamed Little Richie, of killing and torturing his Vietnamese enemies and showing him Polaroid pictures of his victims. He was also, Ramirez was also present the night that Mike shot and killed his wife with blood even splattering on Ramirez's face. I have no words. So, you know, not a great childhood. Uh, definitely one of the worst. On um, Yeah, that's, on that, that's, that's pretty up there. On that night, May 4th, where Miguel Faley shoots his own wife, Jesse, in the face during a fight while Ramirez is obviously present, uh, a few months later... Ramirez moves in with his sister, Ruth, and her husband, Roberto. Roberto, interesting enough, is regarded as what you would call a peeping Tom. And he would often take Ramirez along with him to do just that. Mm. Uh, After dark, you know, peep at women while they're changing or in the bathroom. And in 1977, Miguel was released from Texas State Mental Hospital after being found not guilty of his wife's murder by reason of insanity. During this time, Ramirez also gets a job working at a Holiday Inn where he breaks into hotel rooms to steal from guests and even attempts to rape one. He eventually becomes addicted to drugs and even drops out of high school. Now, all of this summing up his early life into the condensed points of what I would like to call certain triggers or starts mm-hmm. to what follows. Because if you know the story of the Night, Night Stalker, these are all things that pertain to his crimes. Yeah. Which is very interesting. And once we get into that, I'll go back to it and you'll sort of see that weird pattern between the two. Um, just a super quick side note. Yes. If you are interested, obviously, in in watching more about Ramirez, there uh, is a Netflix there is. series out at the moment. There really is. Okay. Ramirez's first identified Night Stalker crime began with the murder of a 79-year-old human... Uh, uh, woman, sorry. In her... <laughs> Began with the murder of a 79-year-old elephant. It's unknown what they are. Uh, In uh, her suburban home in Glassell Park, June 1984. Police managed to lift fingerprints from the window screen of the house, but without a suspect for comparison, the clue led them nowhere. Funnily enough, in 2009, his DNA had been matched with a sample obtained from the crime scene of a murder and rape of a nine-year-old Chinese-American girl, Mei Luong. She had been raped and stabbed to death in the basement of his San Francisco hotel where Ramirez was currently living at the time, uh, before he hung her body from a pipe. What? Yeah. Originally, it was thought to be uh, part of his... It, it, it was thought to be part of his original crime spree, um, but there was no DNA to really match him until, obviously, 2009 when they matched those two DNA samples together. Right. Uh, as, as well as the um, first murder was kind of unknown until they matched DNA later on in a different crime. Um, kind of becoming a bit of a theme with these earlier, 
um, serial killer cases. Yeah, as DNA technology yes. gets better, you can sort of test, yeah. So, uh, beginning the original spree, which what what he was sort of known for and what he was connected to um, originally, on March 17, 1985, Ramirez attacks a 22-year-old woman named Maria Hernandez outside her home in Rosemead, California. Before he enters the house, he had shot at Hernandez a few times. Uh, then inside the house, he immediately shoots and kills 34-year-old housemate Dale Okazaki. Uh, Hernandez had miraculously survived the attack after the bullet Ramirez had fired at her ricocheted off the keys she li- had in her hands as she lifted her hands up to defend herself from the bullet. Wow. Miraculously, the bullet reflects off the keys. Yeah. Uh, within an hour... Ramirez strikes again at Mon- Monterey Park. He attacks a 30-year-old Sai uh, Lian Yu and pulls her out of her car onto the road. He then shoots her several times before leaving the area. The police found her still breathing, but unfortunately, uh, she eventually died while awaiting paramedics. Mm-hmm. With both incidents occurring in the same day, the media had a complete meltdown. Mm. The killer was described as having long curly hair, bulging eyes, and rotting teeth, with the media now dubbing him as both the walk-in killer and the valley intruder. Soon, uh, with the media spread, fear had been had run amok throughout the public. Uh, and, and not too soon after, on March 27th, Ramirez shoots 64-year-old Vincent Zarara and his 44-year-old wife, Maxine. Maxine's body was found later with, uh, with several stab wounds and a tea carving on her left breast. She was also found with both of her eyes gouged out. Oh, my. Oh, the eye. Yes. I can't do the eyes. The so eyes the thing freak is, me out. Okay. The autopsy revealed that all the mutilations, including the eyes, were post-mortem. It's oh, there's still something bad. Still about eye yes. gouging. I, I have a thing about eyes. Ramirez had left a few footprints in the flower beds, and which, of course, police phot- photographed and cast for investigation. Mm. But that was pretty much all they had in terms of solid evidence connecting anyone to the case. Again, not a lot to go off of, and no one to really match it to. The bullets found at the crime scene were matched. Uh, to those found with previous attacks, and the police soon realized that they, in fact, had a serial killer on their loose. Vincent and Maxine's bodies were discovered in their Whittier home by their son, Peter. With the recent discoveries, media coverage, and overall public panic, uh, a multi-county police investigation was soon put in place. The law enforcement agencies all worked together through the month of April without a single attack. However, only two months after murdering the Zarara couple, Ramirez strikes again. 66-year-old Harold Wu was shot in the head with his wife, 63-year-old Jean Wu, was beat, bound, and violently raped. For no apparently reason, he decides to let Jean live. Uh, very weird and unlike anything you've ever really heard with these kind yeah. of cases. Especially leaving a witness. It's just, it's such a bizarre thing to do. Yeah. Uh, for a few, uh, with a few attacks on his belt, Ramirez was starting to form a pattern. And with every, with more and more attacks happening, he was leaving more and more clues behind. And soon his identity was starting to build up. Uh, May 29, 1985, Ramirez attacks 83-year-old 
Malvial Keller and her disabled 80-year-old sister, Blanche Wolf, beating each with a hammer. Yes. Ramirez attempts to rape Keller, but wasn't successful. Using lipstick, he drew pentagrams on Keller's thigh and on the wall in the bedroom. Keller unfortunately passes away, but Blanche survives the whole attack. The very next day, he attacks 41-year-old Ruth Wilson, uh, who was bound, raped, and sodomized by Ramirez, while her 12-year-old son is locked away in a closet. No, 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 no. Yes. Ramirez slashed Wilson once and then bound her and her son together and left. In the months of June and July, three more women were killed. Two had had their throat slit, one was beaten to death, and all three victims were attacked in their very own homes. On July 5th, 16-year-old Whitney Bennett was attacked but survives a beating from a tire iron. July 7th, 63-year-old Linda Fortuna was assaulted and Ramirez tried to rape her, but again was unsuccessful. On July 20th, he struck twice within the day. Jeez, he's like spring. Yes. So, this is all between 1984 to 1985. Jesus. At least 13 to 16 plus victims. Uh, depending on what crimes you're, mm. you know, re- recounting. Yeah. Uh, so in Sun Valley, July 20th, he shoots and kills 32-year-old a man, Chitat Asawimham, and his wife, 29-year-old Sakima, who was beaten and forced to perform oral intercourse. Oh. Ramirez stole several valuables and left left the house. Later the same day, 66-year-old Maxon Kneading and his wife Layla, also 66, were shot dead and had their corpses mutilated. It's just, to me, his MO is so all over the place. Yes, and like that's... A, a knife, a gun, yes. a tire iron, young women, that's, older women, That's men, exactly the children. point that I want to get into later on because it all kind of makes sense if you look at it from a certain perspective. Okay. Um, Later in the same day, um, there was those murders. And then later on in August 6th, Ramirez shot both 38-year-old Christopher Peterson and his 27-year-old wife, Virginia, in the head. By some insane miracle, they both survived the attack. August 8th, Ramirez attacks another couple, fatally shooting 35-year-old Ahmed Zia for raping, sodomizing, and forcing Zia's 28-year-old wife, Sue Key, to perform um, oral sex on him. The description that she gave uh, as a survivor of the attack to police perfectly matched that of all the other uh, recounts of the walk-in killer. Ramirez then left the Los Angeles area, and on August 17th, he shot to death a 66-year-old man in San Francisco, also shooting and beating his wife. His wife survives the attack and was able to identify the description of two police as the walk-in killer from the police sketches. Since the walk-in killer was no longer fit to um, match his what they thought was his modus uh, operandi, um, the news now began to redub him as the Night Stalker. Right. This is when he was officially called such. Mm-hmm. And things started to ramp up really on August 24th, 1985 for Ramirez. So he had traveled about 80 Ks 
which is about 50 miles south of LA to Mission Viejo and broke into the Mediterranean village apartment of 29-year-old Bill Carnes and his fiance, 27-year-old Inez Erickson. Ramirez shot at Carnes, killing him with a bullet to the head and then proceeded to rape Erickson. Afterwards, he uh, demanded that she swear her love and fealty to Satan before forcing her to perform oral sex on him. He then tied her up and left her at the property. Now, absolute fucking badass she is. Erickson manages to struggle to the window and get a good look at both Ramirez and the car he was driving, an orange Toyota station wagon. Good girl. Also on that, a teenager later was able to identify the car from the news reports and wrote down half of its license plate number. On the 28th of August, the stolen car was found and police were able to obtain a fingerprint on the mirror. Those prints found belonged to Richard Munoz Ramirez. Described as a 25-year-old drifter from Texas with a long rap sheet of including several arrests for traffic and narcotics violations. Two days later, his mugshots were Mugshots were broadcast on national TV, printed on the cover of every single major newspaper in California. Now, Ramirez had not a single clue of this until he walked into a liquor store and saw himself in that day's newspaper. Right. He obviously panics as other customers soon realize that, oh, hey, that's the fucking guy from the newspaper. And he's pretty... Like he distinct, just, yeah, very distinct. Uh, he runs two miles in uh, within the next twelve minutes. Great time. Uh, and- yeah, that, <laughs> that is boy is legging yeah. it. Uh, and, and attempts to steal a car to, to escape. Now, here you'll get a bit of a kick out of this. Ramirez is in. I don't like using the term tough neighborhood, but he's in a neighborhood where they don't take take. That kind of shit lightly. Yeah. They see that guy, they're going to fuck him up. Yeah. And that's exactly what they do. A bunch of people see that it's, it is, in fact, him. And police end up having to rescue him from <laughs> nearly getting beaten to death. Oh, my God. Yes. That's the best thing. Really I've, bad. That's the best thing I've heard yeah. since I heard that oh, we got police the- had to hold Catherine Knight yeah. off with brooms <laughs> and mops. <laughs> that's in like that's in an early oh, episode. Call if you back. Wanna, you need to listen to the episode. Oh, if you want to go back, yeah, that's amazing. Yes, they should have. Like honestly, there was a police officer. Wouldn't you just be like, should we just? Well, shoot, no, because you kind of want you want him to go to jail for the things he's done. You want him to to to, to pay. Yeah, but I I penance. would put money on them. They were just like just just yeah. two more minutes. All right. just let him go <laughs> yeah, for yeah. two more minutes. Well, okay. Now. We now are moving on to the trial and conviction of Richard Ramirez. Okay. And my God, it gets weird. Okay. Like absurdly weird. So the jury selection for the case started on July 22nd, 1988. And on, uh, again, on September 20, 1989. Ramirez was found guilty of 13 counts of murder, five counts of attempted murder and 11 counts of sexual assault and 14 counts of burglaries. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of, lot of, a lot yeah. of stacked up uh, cases. On November 7th, 1989, he was sentenced to die in California's gas chamber. Supposedly, Ramirez's trial was one of the most difficult and longest trials in American history. 
nearly. I would have thought that title would have gone to Ted Bundy's because I know that was a bit of a shit show. This was apparently uh, just as bad, if not worse. So nearly 1,600 prospective jurors were interviewed. Uh, Now, what it means to be a prospective juror is if you receive a notice to prospective juror, your name has been randomly chosen from the electoral roll to take part in a jury service as a potential juror. Right. The notice includes a prospective juror questionnaire that you must complete and return to the court that issued the notice by the due date. Mm -hmm. Your answers will then tell if you're available and eligible for jury service at that selected time. A few witnesses had some difficulty recalling certain facts four years after the crimes, of course, but with over a hundred witnesses testifying, there were certainly others who could confirm the identity yeah. of Ramirez. Uh, according to a report by the LA Times on the 3rd of August, 1988, a couple jail employees had overheard Ramirez planning to shoot the prosecuting attorney with obviously a gun, uh, which he, of course, intended to smuggle into the courtroom. Right. Accordingly, metal detectors were installed outside the courtroom and people entering had to be searched extensively. Very smart. In a very random and strange me, incident- It's gone. so wild that they didn't do that before, though. Know, it makes, it's like, what the fuck? Yeah. Why is this not a thing? Uh, anyway, this is where things get absurd. Okay. Absurdly absurd. Okay. The trial was interrupted due to one of the jurors- You ready? Mm. Not arriving at the courtroom. Oh, why? Later that day, August 14th, the juror Phyllis Singletary was found shot to death in her apartment. Is is that a coincidence or is it connected? Obviously, the entire jury loses their minds, freaking out and terrified. The first thing that obviously comes to mind, as you said... Is Ramirez somehow responsible for this, and am I next? Mm. Yeah, I would like there would just if someone thought there'd like be there would be poo. Everywhere, they all <laughs> I would shit. Oh no, poo poo! My oh. pants, like literally, just shit yes. myself. So obviously, they all believe that he was directing this murder somehow from his prison cell. And wasn't he big on like Satan worship as well? Yes. So you so it's, like it's the, a fair point the devil to make. Did it? Oh, that gives me chills. Yes. The thing is, Ramirez was, in fact, not responsible for Singletary's death. Right. So, it was just a very, very strange She had been shot to death uh, and obviously subsequently killed by her boyfriend, who later killed himself with the same weapon in a hotel. Okay. Uh, they had a, uh, an argument, uh, which later led to a violent murder and a mm. subsequent suicide. A weird freak incident. Mm. The juror who had to replace Singletary was too scared to even return to her home afterwards. Yeah. Obviously. uh, uh, Such a weird occurrence. And I guess because if it's like an ongoing trial for the- Oh, because he was dead. Would you be able to just tell the jurors like, no, 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 it was actually her boyfriend? I don't know. Would they be able to tell them that? I don't know. It's it's, it's such a perplexing mm. thing. Anyway, continue. Uh, so, by the time of the trial, Ramirez had several fans who were writing him letters and paying him visits. And ever since 1985, freelance magazine editor Doreen Leoy wrote him nearly 75 letters during his jail time. 
1988, after a few visits, he actually proposed to her on October the 3rd, 1996. They were married in California's San Quentin State Prison. Yeah. Leoy was also stated as saying that she will commit suicide when Ramirez is executed. Yeah. Very interesting stuff. Yeah. Uh, So, fun fact. uh, After the connection to the case with um, the, uh, I believe she was eight years old, um, nine years old, sorry, Chinese American girl, um, uh, Liang, uh, she, after that was connected, uh, Leoy actually cut off and divorced uh, any relationship with Ramirez. Right, because that's where you draw the line. Yes. the ni- Apparently, everything else is fine, but the nine-year-old girl is where you go, that's ah, kind of fucked, like, mate. That's too much. Yeah. Look, I thought you would just lose, but that's just fucked. <laughs> I thought you would <laughs> just lose. Well, like, why are you... What, what's what's the thought process know, of, like... it's, like, so fucked You know what up. I mean? Like, yeah, why exactly. Why is that, like, the other things didn't... Yeah. Like, that didn't tie together yeah, at all? Yeah, that, that wasn't... What made you think, like, maybe this dude isn't husband material? Anyway, so my thought process on this, um, which a lot of uh, independent uh, freelance writers also came to the same conclusion, is we often get a, and also John Douglas found this point, there's a clear distinction between a sociopath and a psychopath. Mm. So a psychopath is absolutely incapable of feeling any normal kind of emotions um that was definitely the case with dharma son of sam ted bundy yeah um zero regard for what they did and 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 how it affected the other people they need control they need to be in control of all the situations that's why they set up these certain elaborate ways to draw people in mm. and murder them in specific MOs, specific ways. They, mm. they do it. Um, Ramirez, on the other hand, was very emotional and very sp- spontaneous and extremely volatile. Mm. Um, not at all methodical, not thought out, not a single victim was premeditated. Right. All of them were... Yeah, because didn't he he saw he unlocked homes. doors like if someone's door was locked, he just he entered wouldn't... homes. Yeah, but wasn't there something? Wasn't he the guy that if someone's door was locked, he saw that as a sign that he wasn't allowed to go in? But if the door was unlocked, it was like an invitation. I, I didn't read that anywhere. Am I, I don't know. You might be getting that mixed up with someone else. Yeah, but he he broke into homes uh, and stole valuables. Attempted and sometimes was successfully successfully raped and also murdered um, through different uses of, of weapons. Um, and this leads me to think that he's more on the sociopath of things, um, where it's more so their mental triggers are developed through life experiences and manufactured in society. Right. They tend to lie break laws, act impulsively, and lack uh, regard for their own safety or the safety of others. Um, You know, which is obviously completely different to every other case we kind of work with where they have a clear, um, you know, method to their Mm. madness. 
Um, which is kind of interesting because it leads me to think that with your case as well, it's the same sort of thing. Yeah. Well, Kearney like cruised, he did cruise gay bars to try and sort of hunt. It was a little bit right. more methodical. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. Um, but yeah, that's the thing. Ramirez was not, uh, you know, was not a, a Dennis Nielsen. It wasn't a mm. uh, Ed Kemper, or yeah. he wasn't the son of Sam. He didn't, he didn't hunt for a specific kind of person. It was just all spur of the moments. You, you mean there was a fluctuation with ages, and there wasn't a ages and ethnicity and genders. Yeah, obviously the sodomy so- and the rape and the and the forced fellatio was uh, specific to women, of course, um, but the murders. And All over the place. Yeah, the violence was not specific to any one weapon. Mostly, it was gunfire, mm. but there was also mutilation and stabbing, stabbing and blunt irons, weapons, hammers. Yes, and yeah. um, regardless of who was there, race, age, um, gender, it was it was inconsistent. But the one thing that was consistent was. The mutilation, the sodomy, the rape, the rage killing, and the stealing, which all stems from things from his early childhood. Mm. He's shown early Polaroids of mutilated corpses, uh, raped- Who who thinks that's an- Like, like, who shows that to a child, honestly? Well- uh, I mean, obviously, he- He he had military experience and- That can also not to say that everyone who has military experience is a is a psychopath. Yeah, um, but it is interesting. It is a factor when up. you look at connections between all these different killers, and yeah. you know he's obviously a killer himself. He's he kills for his country, but that doesn't necessarily exclude him from mm. uh, also killing just for the sake of it. Yeah, because obviously he was killing random Vietnamese civilians. And taking yeah, photos of them and, and mutilating their corpses. And showing that to young Ramirez at a young age uh, from an older sibling, a very influential person in your life, mm. when your father's an abusive person. Yeah, so true. Also, having his cousin kill his wife in front of him. Yeah, that, that'll... Yeah. Which then becomes a method of how he kills people later on in yeah, his partners life. partners in front of partners. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what it is like? I I hate to use the word funny in relation to any serial killer. Well, interesting, I guess. Or no, no, no. It'll make sense. Okay, I hate to use the word funny, but one thing about the Night Stalker case that does give me a giggle every time I see it is his police sketch. Have you seen his police sketch? No. It looks like Bob Ross mixed with Elmo. (laughs) It looks nothing like him. That's terrifying. Oh, my God. No wonder they didn't find the guy. His police sketch looks literally nothing like him. It looks like you took, like, Bob Ross, Elmo, and, like, Jeff Goldblum and, like, mixed them all together. Like, it just doesn't look anything like him. And it's like, no wonder they didn't find the dude. I get the like the bulging eyes thing, like you can sort of see that. But he also has very squinted eyes. They're bulging, but they're squinted. 
yeah, when you look when you look at him compared to his sketch, it's just they're not even yeah that that is not the same person. No, like if you want to, like I said, I hate to use the word funny, but if you want a little chuckle, just Google you know, Richard Ramirez police sketch and you'll see what I mean. It doesn't, it does not look anything like him. Yeah. Um, also, don't look at his teeth because they're fucking disgusting. Oh, his disgusting. teeth are terrifying. Yep. Like, honey. <laughs> what is going on? So, apparently that was due to, um, he had a, he had a daily routine of drinking Coca-Cola and eating anything, any cereal uh, that was sugar covered. He must have been in pain. He never brushed his teeth. Apparently, that was that must have hurt. Thing. Like, yeah. I like. I feel like I get a slight cold breeze, and my teeth hurt. And yeah. I want to say I take pretty good care of my teeth. Yeah, like, but also you don't have a addiction to cocaine. And a morning routine Speak of for yourself. <laughs> and a routine of drinking coke and yeah. well, doing coke, drinking coke, and also eating sugar covered cereal. Mm. Um, you know, uh, he, apparently he would he would uh, he those would, frosty flakes that get you every time. Yeah, exactly. No, that was a re- that was a good one. Uh, that was very interesting, and yes. um, the way you set that out was quite good. Thank Goes you. to show we haven't com- entirely lost our touch. No, I mean... Although there would be some anonymous commentators on the internet who would say we never had it to begin with. Oh, true, yeah. <laughs> Those ones who don't like the old certain words. Certain words. So. They don't like the fact that we use Wikipedia. I'm like, dude, yeah. we're not journalists. We don't know what the fuck we're doing. It's just a... Let me use Wikipedia. It's just a show, man. Like, it's not that fucking... We're not, like... We have jobs. We have... This is, like, a thing... We do, we do for fun. As well as our jobs. Like it's and we would love to make it our full time income. But we're not and fucking. Maybe there if yet. we did, we put some effort <laughs> in. <laughs> yeah. Look, if you want to pay us to do this, then I'll do investigation properly. Until then. Get off my dick. Like, like shut the fuck up. They're like, I, th- uh, I remember that. It was like, I'm literally like, I could. If is I w- this just no, from no, Wikipedia you know what or it is. something? No, no. It, it, what it was, it was saying um, some of these, uh, some of this content is directly taken from Wikipedia. I don't remember what and it was. It was. It, it annoyed me, though. It wasn't copied and pasted. It was like. It was like very similar to the way it was structured, mm. which is fair because it, it was taken from Wikipedia. But the way they, they said it was like, if I wanted to read about this case or learn more about this case, I'd just read the Wikipedia article. I'm like, okay, it's well, like, okay, well, well off that. you fucking go then. And obviously, how are you going to say, like, how are you going to give me shit for using Wikipedia when it's very obvious that you have also been on Wikipedia Bitch, why are you because corroborating... you know it's from Wikipedia. Why are you corroborating our episode yeah. with fucking don't Wikipedia? Get live. What are you like, doing? Are you like listening to the episode and going, oh, they mentioned two words exactly the same? Do people have? <laughs> we don't even have time to write the fucking episode. Let <laughs> research someone else's. <laughs> Bitch, get a hobby. Um, anyway, if you're new here, this is the part of the episode oh. where the stories are done and we just it's completely all go off the rails. It's so all downhill strap from here. in because it's not going to get any better. It's just going <laughs> to decline in quality from here on out. Yeah. 
Um, Fuck me dead. Yeah, anyway, commentators on the internet just... I know everyone's like, you shouldn't let it bother you. I'm like, but it does because the worst I'm a one, millennial and I need to constantly have my ego straight. The worst one that really annoyed me, I wouldn't say annoyed, it was just kind of like weird and not true at all, was that they were saying that we forced the swearing. Yeah. That was just so That was bizarre. odd because I was like, you have no idea how much we actually tried to Yeah, oh my God. Down. We we. Try you so would much. hate us in real life. We had my to, God, we had to on a lost episode that I'm so sad. Oh, that's lost, right. I dropped the C bomb, and we had to stop the episode. <laughs> we had to stop it, and we because we have agreed, we made a pact when we started this show that we yes. would never say the C word, but in real life, oh, we both say it a lot. It, it so, flows in our conversations. There you go. Yeah. Um. Anyway, Joe Biden's president. That's good. Yeah, that happened. It's been a nice, like, I don't know how our American listeners are feeling, but for, for us over the pond, it's been a nice relief to not switch the news on or, you know, not switch the news on because who watches the news on television yeah, what the fuck anymore? Are you switching on? Uh, like, to go onto the internet, my news site of choice, and it's not just like. Trump, 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 Trump. Well, it's just kind of died. It's just yeah. calmed. You know what bit. it is? It's not hearing everything that has been said or has been done. It's just nice. It's just normal it's just shit. Peaceful. And like, if something ever does happen where it's like, Biden's done this and it's like, oh shit, that's a bad thing. It's going to be stuff that it's a president has done. It's still better than inject yourself with bleach. But it's but it's like if he's does something wrong, it's like it's a president doing something that a president probably shouldn't do. Yeah. Rather than a reality TV star pretending to be <laughs> a president. Doing something that no other human doing something should that ever do. No one should ever fucking yeah. do in their entire lives. Yeah, he was a... Ah, oh, Trump. Yeah. Look, I'm not going to lie... I'm so happy that Joe Biden is president. It's so good for the American people. There is a tiny, teeny, twinsy little part of me that's just going to miss the sheer theatrical drama yeah. that Trump bought. I think if he I stays... just would like to clarify, I'm so glad he's not president. I don't yeah. agree with any of his politics, but it was a fucking circus. If like... he stays in politics, much like how, and no one outside of Australia will get this, um, there's a look him up. There's a politician called Clive Palmer or Kevin Rudd. Kevin Rudd still like sticks his beak in every now and then. Well, no, Kevin Rudd's a, a very active member of the community. Uh, Clive Palmer is much like uh, Donald Trump in the sense that he's a very wealthy man who kind of like found his way into politics. Yeah. Uh, he's regarded as a fucking joke in politics, essentially, and, and amongst the entirety of the Australian people. And anything he says or does. Is kind of just like it's just memeable. It's like that one kid in in high school who kind of like yelled out random shit, and you're like, "What, what are you, are you saying? What are you, who the fuck is this?" I want Trump to be that guy. I yeah, want him to just be there, to like not actually be involved, but just make stupid remarks. That zero we can power, every now and then. zero power. Yeah. But please tell me more about how much bleach will save my life. I need these people in my life. For yeah, amusement. Um, Drag Race. Drag Season Race. Thir- 14, 14, 13? 13. 13. I think it's 13. The unlucky UK number. And Drag Race Down Under 
has been confirmed. Yes, I will, I will be putting in my application to be a guest judge for Down Under. We're going to have to come up with a drinking game, like take a shot every time Rue or Michelle says throw a shrimp on the barbie. It's it's oh, coming. The amount or of times they have, like... every time they say good day. Yeah, the amount of, like, colloquialisms they have in UK is just absurd. Yeah. I, I can't, can't imagine wait. what they'll have for Australia. Because I feel be- like Australia is such a weirdly, like... From the outside, like misunderstood country, I don't know. Yeah, like, th- maybe everyone feels that way about their own country. I'm but- sure. Well, like you look at it, Ireland. Like, there's so much to Ireland, but all they get is like tilly tea and potatoes, and Top that's like the morning tea. Exactly, but there's and so much more. Yeah, or, or yeah, Scotland, Scotland's kilts and haggis and shit like that. And it's like, but there's so much more yeah, to the country. True. I just feel like you hear a lot of like, like you said, colloquially. Oh, fuck. I know. I, I you even, said that word so smoothly. Did I? I feel like I, I fucked it up. Can't say it. That's the new masochism. <laughs> did I say it? No, you no. didn't. Say Damn it. it. Anyway, that word. Um, <laughs> Like, you know, that we ride kangaroos to school and throw yeah. another shrimp on the barbie and g'day. We kind of just do burnouts and commodores and that's about it. To school, that is. People won't know what a commodore is. It's an uh, Australian brand of car. It's a... Well, it's a model, technically. Chevy Chevy uses uh, Holden... Chevy and Holden shared models of cars. But yeah, I so feel like... It's a Chevy... Whatever. I feel like Australian drag is great, but so fucking messy. Just like oh, I like that. I no, like I love messy. it. Yeah, I'm not. I just feel like it's a certain. I don't think Rue's gonna like it. No, because they don't seem to totally get British or like UK. No, drag it's a very different sometimes. thing. It's, it's so the... different from the states. Yeah. Uh, like I feel like Australian drag reflects Australian culture in that kind of, like, laid-back, don't-give-a-fuck, can't-take-ourselves-seriously. Yeah. Like, it's also going to be very. Obviously, there's... That's not... It's, it's going to be very different depending on where the queens come from. So, if they're coming from, you know, South Australia or Western Australia, uh, you know, Queensland, even... But also, especially Sydney, um, it's going to be different compared to the queens from Melbourne, who have been in lockdown far longer than any other state. Oh, so true. I didn't um, think in that. our country. Well, they're filming which is... it in New Zealand. It's not even being filmed in Australia, which I found so weird. Oh, so it's like, an right Anzac. away, you're lumping So it's an Anzac two... thing. Yeah, they're calling it like Drag Race Down Under, but I'm like, oh, Down Under okay. is Australia. Right. Like, yes, but that's... also people tend to regard New Zealand as a... As, a... as the same country. Yeah. We're well, not the same country, countries. but like in the same sort of area. Yeah. Like we're, we're so close to each other. We could ba- Basically, it's faster to go to New Zealand than it is to go to Western Australia from Sydney. Yeah. I think um, people forget that Australia is actually like really fucking big. Yeah, um, so that's interesting because, um, I like you have queens from New Zealand who were in hard lockdown for a while, but have been COVID free for a long time. Yeah, and they like have doing live shows and shit. Yeah, like, um, compared to queens from Sydney who have been, you know, m- mostly un 
uh, you know, quite well, we like not really had closed any down. Clubs back. Next to yeah, exactly. Well, there hasn't been many clubs back, but it's slowly been reopening. Mm. Whereas Melbourne's been in hard fucking lockdown. No clubs. You can't really go out of the house much. <laughs> they had a very brief window where it was looking okay. For and now they're back, at, but now for a couple of days, that only is. five days. And so that's the thing that people are um, are critiquing RuPaul for for uh, going hard on I Joe did Black. Read that um, you're. Yelling at a queen who's been spent seven months in hard no lockdown. Income. Hard, like UK had some hard lockdown. Mm. Months and months and months of just nothing. Yeah. And no source of income because these are drag queens. This is their main source of income. Yeah. How do you make money without being able to perform? Um, and they're getting. She's getting berated for wearing a H&M dress. And, like, sure, you want to make the argument like you're on. Uh, the biggest platform for RuPaul's, you got to like step it up, like add something to it, add an element to it. Sure, whatever. But it's the fucking challenges are so extreme. Yeah, it's like come then, on, like, give, give a girl a break. At least throw a dumpster dive challenge where like you give them material to work with yeah, to make haven't... something. It's not since like the earlier season have they done that. Done it's that been, for has, ages. They have like those not real done that. crafty. Even the luggage challenges. challenges. They did it with um, US with the with the bag material challenge. Yeah, but not since like really. Yeah, the actual like proper dumpster dive. Ages ones. and and there's been a whole point about like how it's just you you're not leaving it up to um the craftsmanship and the yeah, talent of the that. queens. It's more so like how much money do they have to spend on designer shit. Do you and then you for you to go? Oh, that's fucking amazing! That's great. Yeah, I think the reason I didn't really agree with the critique was it wasn't her like runway dress; it was her performance dress. Like I'm not who, really looking at what they're wearing when they're performing. Her I'm performance was a standout their, amongst the group. I thought it was hilarious. You and I, you're right, babe. Literally had to <laughs> rewind it and go back. Be like, you're right, babe. Oh, I've been better. <laughs> Marginally improving. Yeah, yeah, it was so good. It was so funny. I love Joe Black. I really do. I'm so disappointed. Like, just so triggered by the fact that she got eliminated not once, but yeah. twice. I really hope everyone who stayed past this point is a RuPaul fan because this has just been oh, yeah, I'm 10 really minutes of us not. ragging on about uh, it. No, that's what we talked about. We talked about the US presidency for a little while. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, okay, how glad are we to be back? doing this just yeah so fun. excited i'm yeah. still campaigning to continue recording from bed because i've really enjoyed this <laughs> we've had to um we, we've had some like instances where the cats have come in because we have an ensuite and a, and a bathroom they've come in and gone for the litter and we've kind of been like no no don't don't get away from there we're we're uh, we're, oh, no, it's actually like them. worked quite well it's been quite peaceful yeah and you know what it means that when we're done You'll take the microphone away, and I'm going to just lay down, Straight to bed. go to sleep. Yep. It's great. It is good. Um, you know, who knows where the future will take us. You know, how bad your neck gets. You might have to permanently... Oh, don't say about that. I want it to get better, not worse. Okay. It will get better. It has to get better. I've basically had a, a referred pain tension migraine for like two weeks. It's mm. not a good time, guys. It's really not fun. We had our engagement party yes, this that weekend was fun, that passed. Though. 
Uh, we officially celebrated our engagement. That was very fun, which yep. we really didn't think we were going to be able to do for no. a minute there. So uh, if you're not from Sydney uh, or really Australia at all. Yeah, we had a like um, small outbreak mm-hmm. in Sydney just before Christmas. So they kind of brought back in some of the restrictions and we were super, super, super close to cancelling the party. And then one of my bridesmaids was like, no, just give it one more week. Like one more week and then you can cancel and we waited and lo and behold, the restrictions were lifted. Yep. So we got to partake, which was really nice because I think that is genuinely the first time we've seen all of our friends <clears throat> in like the one room yeah. since like a year. So probably. we have like, I, I guess a few who couldn't make it or like maybe one or two couples that couldn't make it. And the, and we have a couple that's currently stuck in Japan Right yeah, now, they can't get home. Um, they went for a holiday for, and they could, they could, they got stuck there. They couldn't come home. Um, so we're very excited to see them when they get back. That'll be uh, nice. It's been well over a year now. Yeah, it's been a long, long time. Yeah, yeah. So that was our weekend. Still recovering a little bit. Yeah, sure. Well, I am absolutely. You'll know, my. You just wait. You, you're gonna <laughs> hit twenty five. I'm I, telling you, you know, I, I it's get it all downhill I, from 25. Yeah, I get it every now and then. I think it's because, um, I, I stuck to like one set drink, like for our actual engagement, the day I, I proposed to you, and we had a a bit of a party afterwards. I was having a few beers during the day, and then I Switched finished the night off with rum, with rum and margaritas. Oh, that's right. So that was my downfall. And then I suffered for that. But I think I've discovered like a method to just not having to worry about that. Is just, I have no method. You have no method at all. Let's go for it's it. It's unfortunate. I feel really bad that you have to go through that because it's um. I mean, I could, I could say woe is me, but it's like it's totally my own doing. So I really have no one to it is. blame yeah. about It myself. really kind of is, to be honest. Yeah. But I'm telling you, and if anyone who is listening is over the age of 25, you get to 25 and it's like a switch flicks in your brain and you completely lose your ability to handle hangovers. And now it doesn't take a few hours, it takes a few days. So just you wait. 25 in a couple of months. I'm going to be saying I told you so this time next Yeah, sure. I'm not looking forward to it. It's like the first time I was talking to my friend James who's of the same age and the same birth month. And it's the first time I've been like, I don't want this birthday to come. I would rather you stay right over there, about a month away. People keep telling me that like 30s, 30, your 30s are the best years. And I'm like, I don't, I could, I yeah. could go without knowing that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I've been enjoying my 20s. They say that, they say like the 30s is new 20s and then the 40s is the new 30s. It's like, can we just not? I do feel like women especially are told to have this, like, fear of turning 30. It's like you turn 30 and suddenly you're a hag. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, men become, like, silver foxes and women just become old. I don't know. Some of the more most attractive women in Hollywood are in their 30s. Scarlett Johansson, Kristen Ritter. Yeah, true. Like I, I'm... I mean, there's a lot of role models to look to 
if you're scared of t- going from 20 to 30 right now, I mean, there's there's plenty of people out there that have really killed it in their 30s. Yeah, well, we've got a couple more years before I'm there, so let's not get too... Exactly, yeah. Exactly. All right. Well, thank you for joining us for yeah. the season premiere of uh, season two. We hope you like the new podcast artwork, which is really the only thing that's changed. We were going to change the theme song, but then we couldn't really find something that we liked, so we just yeah. stuck with all yeah. And uh, once again, um, we, we thank you guys for you know messaging us. Uh, and actually reaching out because we did take a bit of um, a long time to get back into it just for reasons that we won't really get into. Um, but it's, it was really nice to have you guys reach out and you know ask if we're okay and ask when the show's coming back. And it's really encouraging to, to hear that um, because so many times, and we mention this all the time, it's such a separation for us to, to realize that we have this following and mm. we have these people that are actually genuinely interested in where the show's going um so we promise you guys we, we're back to full form weekly episodes um and you know god forbid anything steer us off that path but life sometimes isn't that fair you know yeah but it's all good we're back now yeah and we intend to keep our weekly schedule moving forward until we decide to do a Season three, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I guess until the end of the year. Yeah, we didn't really make like an official decision to end the season. We were just kind of like, I can't do this. Oh, it got to those last few episodes. So burnt out. I need a break. Crazy. Yeah. So Um, we'll see. You know how long we last this time. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Well, with that, we will bid you adieu, our fellow true crime enthusiasts. Why are you looking at me? I'm just looking at you. Are you looking no... for like validation for what you said? Yeah, sure. Yeah, good job. Thank you. Well done. That's all I want yeah, in cool. this relationship. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we will see you guys next time. Next week. Oh, and then as usual, you can find us on all things social media at the BSC podcast. Uh, if you have a six degrees of separation story you'd like to send us, or if you just want to shoot us through an email to say hello, because, you know, we like to have a good, we like to have a little chat. Uh, our email address is bestservedcoldpodcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. I would like to think I post some pretty damn good memes on Instagram. So, you know, I'm a fan of the gram. I oh, yeah. would suggest following us there. I think that's where it's at. But, you know, it depends on what your poison is. I occasionally post what I think are funny things on Twitter. Tama may disagree on that. but No, I agree. I think they're very funny. Thanks. I, some of them I send to you. Yeah, I, we get a lot of comp- – I've had a lot of – like a weird amount of people compliment us on our meme selection skills, yeah. which as a millennial, I take memes very seriously. It's, it's the highest accolade you oh, could probably get. It's the only get. thing we truly care about yeah. as millennials. Well, I don't give a memes. fuck about the numbers for the podcast. All I care about is how the quality do of you our memes. like our memes. Yeah. What do you meme? <laughs> anyway, uh Thanks for joining us Thank for you. the season premiere. It's been nice to be back. I hope that we weren't too rusty and Domo I hope that the quality was all good. And we will see you on social media. And if we don't see you there, 
we won't see you on air because this is the, I've just realized this is an audio platform, so we'll never see you. Uh, cool. Well, I fucked that up. Ma- All right. Bye. Bye. <laughs> 2021.